This is the Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 393. This podcast is brought to you by UCAN. UCAN's patented ingredient, Live Steady, has the remarkable ability to provide a steady release of energy without spiking blood sugar levels. This helps you focus through long days, last longer in training, and keep hunger in check, all without compromising your health. Fuel your next personal best with UCAN and save 20% on your order with the code MTA. That's UCAN.co and use the code MTA to save 20%. Thanks also to Ice Barrel. Ice Barrel is a cold therapy training tool that makes it easy to bring ice baths into your routine. And as a listener, you'll get $125 off. So you can give it a try and see if you love it as much as we do. Go to icebarrel.com forward slash MTA. Use the code MTA for $125 off. We all know how empowering running can be, so we want you to check out the Running For Real podcast. It's a podcast for runners who want to use their sport to become better people themselves and to create positive change around them. Host Tina Muir welcomes guests from all walks of life united by a love of running. There are run club founders like Sydney Baptista, James Rowe, Leandro Belnavis, and Lance Woods who are using their sport to build community. There are environmental activists like Lydia Jennings, Patty Gonia, and Ryan Montgomery, who are raising awareness about climate change and working to make the running space more inclusive. Tina also talks to writers like Malcolm Gladwell, Mishka Shubali, Ryan Holiday, Steve Magnus, and Simranjeet Singh, who share their thoughts on how running impacts our lives. You can find Running For Real at runningforreal.com and on your favorite podcast player. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we inspire and empower you to run a marathon and change your life. This is Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we're joined by fellow podcaster Chris McClung from Running Rogue to answer questions sent in from audience members. Plus, Angie will give you a quick recap of her race in Montana. And of course, don't forget, as an Academy member, you get access to all the goods, our back podcast episodes, training plans, nutrition course, our online community. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So Angie, welcome back. Isn't this weather great? Yes, I love when it's cool in the morning and then warms up as the day goes on. You're gearing up for the Wine Glass Marathon in Corning, New York. It's been 11 years since you've done that race. It'll be interesting to go back. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It was one of those that I wanted to go back and do, but because I was trying to finish my 50 states for a while and then was running fewer marathons in a year, it just really didn't work out until this year. So yeah, a couple of weeks from now, be heading up there and going to enjoy it. And it's also special because it's marathon number 70 for you. Yeah, it feels like a nice even number. (laughs) You can finally retire. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a cool time of year because there's races going on all over. So we want to give some shout outs and some props to folks in our community uh, before we jump into our Q&A today. So Angie, what do you have for us? We'd like to say congratulations to Anne, who is an Academy member. She recently ran a half marathon PR and a negative split at her half marathon in Denver, Colorado. Not easy to do, a negative split. Also congrats to Erin, who works with Coach Athena. She ran the Rhein-Nickendorf Half Marathon, and she finished with a time of 2.02.31, which was a six-minute PR for her. Wait, wait a second. Which half marathon was that? I don't know. I just copied what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Nickendorf. I, yeah, I've never heard of that one. But congrats, Aaron, on the PR. And we heard from Diane in the Social Distancing Run group. She says, Cedar City Half Marathon Podium Finish. I got first place in my age group with a time of two hours and 40 seconds. The conditions were perfect with 50 degrees and no rain. That's always nice. <laughs> Sounds like ideal running weather for sure. And we'd like to say congrats to MTA coach Kristen, who finished the Revel Big Cottonwood Half Marathon with the time of 1.18.26, and she got second in her age group. Yeah, she uh, does so good at those Revel Half Marathons, and she's been like racking them up. I just looked at her stats. She got first place at the Revel Coolia. This is first place overall uh, in 2020. Same year that we were there, but we didn't even know her back then. That's right. Then she got first place at the Revel Sun Valley Half the next year. And then first place at Revel Mount Charleston in April of this year, and now second place at Revel Rockies. I think she's on a roll here. Yeah, those Revel races treat her well. Quite a streak. One of our amazing coaches on the team. 
And finally, congratulations to Katie, who ran the Bozeman Marathon and snagged a PR. She said that it went great, and she listened to the most recent MTA podcast during the race. Well, I want you to tell us about your half marathon and your trip to Montana in this episode. Let's do that at the end after the Q&A, so everyone stay tuned for a quick recap of Angie's race in uh, the beautiful state of Montana. Final shout out to the Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia. I'm really excited about being there. Do the half. Have you registered yet, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yay. <laughs> okay, Angie knows I put things off to last minute. <laughs> so yeah, we have a meetup in the works. Definitely will be Sunday after the race. Just like last year, reach out to me uh, via email. You can send it to Trevor at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com or message us on Instagram or whatever you want. And we'll give you more details as we get close. As far as the race go, it's taking place this year on Saturday, November 12th. And Trevor, as you know, they provide phenomenal course support. It's great fall scenery down there, and they have awesome finisher swag. And 2022 marks the 45th running of the marathon, and they have a nice downhill finish right on the riverfront. Yep, it's a nonprofit. Of course, Richmond has such a wonderful running community. If you want to go, check it out, richmondmarathon.org. They have a marathon and a half and an 8K, richmondmarathon.org. So in this episode, we're joined by a fellow podcaster, Chris McClung from Running Rogue, which is part of the Rogue Running team. I kept getting those two things like backwards. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Rogue Running is kind of the umbrella organization, and they do in-person training runs, coaching. Um, I believe they do some races, so they've got a whole bunch of things going on over there. And then Running Rogue, of course, is the podcast. And Chris has been running for 18 years. He's the father of three, and he is based in Austin, Texas. And you can tell he just has a love for all things running. We gathered questions from his audience and from our audience. Really good questions, by the way. You're going to hear about how late in life can you PR, question about VO2 max. Then we have questions about maintenance plans, running back-to-back marathons, doing speed work, uh, particularly Yasso 800s. Also, questions about fueling and carrying fuel, the marathon taper, and more. So here is our podcaster hangout and listener Q&A. Live podcaster hangout, Rogue Running and Marathon Training Academy, and uh, we're just going to jump right in. So for all of the MTA listeners who might not be familiar with you, Chris, let's start with what do you guys have going on over there at Rogue Running? I know you're based in uh, Austin, right? Yeah, we're based in Austin, Texas, but we've got physical locations in Austin, Dallas, New York, and then we train people virtually all over the globe, actually. We've got people training with us on five different continents. And we're all about getting people faster in whatever format that looks like. Some people that means starting and just getting them off the couch and moving that way. Others, it looks like training for a faster half marathon or marathon. And we've been doing this since 2004 with our in-person training. So 18 years, just a few weeks ago. And I've been doing the podcast since 2016. So almost six years in December. I think you guys are double that if I'm doing my math right. Now you have a job, at least one aspect of your job that I don't envy because I'm not a morning person, but (laughs) you, you like lead like the morning run or something, right? I have a Wednesday morning group that I coach here in Austin that meets at 5.30 a.m., why, Wednesday. man? That's crazy. They're in Texas. <laughs> you have to beat the heat. You have to get you that beat early. The heat <laughs> and people have to get to work. And so, so that's True. when we start. And we usually finish between 7 and 7.15 so people can get on with their days, take kids to school, go to work, whatever it may be. I am not a morning person either, but I do it for the love of it. <laughs> so wow. alarm goes off at 4.30 several days a week to make sure that I can get up and, and do that and coach, but also I run at that time as well. Cause with three kids, that's the only time I can find to do it before chaos ensues. <laughs> I hear you. So I love to always hear how people got into running personally. I mean, you know, before you became a coach, obviously you had to dive into the world of running on your own. Yep. So tell us about that. Yeah, I was a soccer player growing up and running was punishment. So it wasn't something that I necessarily did on its own, although I got a lot of it on the field. So had a background in it indirectly anyway through soccer. And then it wasn't until later in college, 
really my last year in college that I started running for running sake. I had a friend who was a sweet mate of mine at college who had run in high school. So he got me to train for a 10K. And so I did that with him. Had a decent result because I had some foundational fitness from playing soccer. Then I was hooked and tried to train for my first marathon that same year. Ended up getting a stress fracture and building to that because I was doing everything wrong. And actually that injury then set me on a path to become a coach because I was determined then to not let that happen again. So I got very deep in coaching while I was sidelined with that injury. Kind of a a similar story to Angie's in some way. So maybe, maybe for the benefit of the the rogue running podcast listeners, Angie, you you can share the answer to that same question. How did you get into running and what, what possesses you to want to do this? I was not athletic at all in high school. By the time I was a teenager, I'd pretty much lost like all confidence in my body and became very self-conscious. And I wish I had done sports as a teenager, but it was something that I discovered on my own as an adult. And we had moved across the country in 2007. I had two little kids at home. I was pretty depressed about where my life was currently. And I kind of decided that I needed to do something for myself. And so just on a whim, I entered a local 5K and, you know, I'm like wearing the cotton t-shirt and like some cutoff sweats, like, you know, really the didn't know what I was doing look, but I kind of like awakened something within myself and I realized like I really enjoyed just competing and pushing myself. So it wasn't about beating other people at all. It was all about beating that voice inside my head that tells me to quit or to not try. And so um, one 5K led to another as many people (laughs) find. And I decided I was going to take on something super crazy. Like I didn't have any running friends. I didn't know anyone who was a runner, but I decided I was going to train for a marathon. And so kind of like you, I trained for that first marathon, had just downloaded a plan on the internet and didn't do any kind of cross training, you know, didn't know anything about anything and got injured during that first um, bout of marathon training, had some IT band issues, some lower back trouble. But I did manage to show up on race day and ran the thing and crossing that finish line, even though I was in extreme pain in my knee and it was extremely hard. I just, it awakened something within me. I knew that marathons are going to be part of my life. And that is kind of what, like you talked about, Chris, what led me to becoming a running coach and us starting the podcast is allowing people to hopefully have a better experience than I had doing everything wrong finding everything out the hard way. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we started the podcast in 2010 when I was pregnant with our third son. Yeah, didn't know who'd listen. We're just kind of like producing it in our living room. But you know, it definitely hit a chord out there. There were people who were wanting to push their boundaries and find out kind of what they were made of. You know, for a lot of people running is that avenue to becoming better versions of themselves. So and, you know, one thing we had from the beginning in the podcast, Angie, you've always had a brilliant and handsome co-host. <laughs> well, unfortunately, our format is audio, huh? They don't people <laughs> get to tap into that, but <laughs> they, can imagine, they can just imagine it. <laughs> That's right. But you guys were, I mean, that was in the wild west of podcasting days back then. So how did you navigate that at such an early stage? I mean, I feel like when I got started in December of 2016, it was still fairly new. It wasn't quite mainstream. Now there's, you know, so many running podcasts out there. And at the time I was relatively new to the game, but you guys are way ahead of me. So what was it like at that time? Trevor said, we're going to start a podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, literally. Because the idea kind of struck me in 09 and I went on to iTunes, to Apple Podcast and looked and just to see what was out there. And there were guys and gals who were like taking a recorder out on the run with them and like narrating their run, like breathing pretty heavily into the mic. Uh, so there wasn't any kind of like what I would consider professionally produced. But by this time, Angie had run a couple more marathons and she's also a registered nurse. So I knew a lot of people could benefit from what she had to say and from her experience. And uh, one of the earliest guests we had on was Bart Yasso. He was the nice chief running officer of Runner's World back in the day. And he was probably one of the best guests to have because he's just such a nice guy, like really wanted to help. And we were nervous and I think our audio quit and we had to call him back. (laughs) And we had read his book and he was like the superstar to us, but he was just so down to earth and humble. And then I met him at the Modesto Marathon in California and got to run with him. And he remembered who I was. But one thing he said to us, and I guess I'll leave this with everybody, is never limit where running can take you. 
And what Trevor's not saying is that when we started the podcast, he was not a runner and he just wanted me to talk about running. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, you don't know anything (laughs) about running. Like, how is that going to be? I don't want to just hear myself talk this whole time. And so I said, if we do this podcast, you have to start running. And so he kind of had the perspective of the newbie who was going through those growing pains of like, you know, he started out doing the run walk method and he was a person who previously had hated to run. Kind of like you talked about, Chris, as a, a soccer player and running was punishment. That's basically how Trevor viewed it. And so listeners got to follow along the journey of him learning to love and appreciate um, something that's hard. And yeah. you know, it obviously has a lot of paybacks and everything, but it is a challenging process to go from that being a beginning runner, you know, starting from ground zero to building up to three miles and then the half marathon and, mm-hmm. you know, beyond if you choose. Yeah. Running still is hard. It sucks, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> I, it's it's definitely, we if you're doing it right, it's hard sometimes for sure. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but I love that quote from Bart because it does point to the fact that it's about more than the running. You know, you do find success in smashing goals and running if you keep applying yourself, but it unlocks so much more than that. And for us, we like to say that we're making better people through running or better humans mm-hmm. through running because mm-hmm. it, it has a spillover effect on the other parts of your life if you let it ooze over. And that's the powerful stuff. Yes, for sure. Well, we got some great questions sent in from audience members. So since you guys are coaches, I will read the questions and then um, Chris and Angie can weigh in. So this first one is about running and aging. And the question says, I've been running for years now, but it was only a year ago at the age of 36 that I started seriously upping my mileage. It's been rewarding to set some PRs over the last year. And it got me wondering at what age on average do most long distance runners peak? Is it realistic to try and set some PRs well into my 40s, even my 50s? I think this is from one of my listeners. So we should throw this to Angie first. (laughs) Well, this is a great question. And I think the exciting thing about long distance running is that there is the capacity to improve at any age. Obviously, if you were a professional runner in your 20s, you're probably not going to set the same kinds of PRs if you, you know, have t- taken a break and get back into it in your 40s, 50s, 60s. But for most of us, you know, we are not professional runners. Um, we're doing this because we love it. And it sounds like this listener has gotten into it. Um, more as the years go by. And I think there is a huge capacity to improve. I mean, even if you do look at professional runners, many of them are running, especially the women are running some of their best um, times and improving on distances in their late 30s, even early 40s. So there are just some really some powerhouse women out there right now who are, I think, pushing the boundaries and showing us what is possible. And then, of course, there are runners in their 70s that are running sub three hour times like consistently. So I think the thing is like to never set a limit for yourself because our mind does really influence what we're able to accomplish. And I I saw some kind of study, I don't remember, I can't quote the exact source because it's been a few years, but that when you start training seriously, like really, really um, starting to push yourself and apply training principles, you have like a 10 to 12 year window where you can really see some huge improvements. So, you know, if you start really buckling down in your mid to late 30s, then potentially you can see improvements all the way up to 50 possibly. Um, and it obviously depends on a lot of other factors in a person's life, their outside stress level, how much time they have to devote to running, um, their health, how injury prone they are, um, the type of training that they're doing. But yeah, I would say don't set any limits for yourself. Just keep getting out there and trying. Yeah, I agree with all of that. The limits just aren't useful. I think for all of us, once we get to a certain age, there's that devil on our shoulder that's whispering in our ear telling us that at some point the Grim Reaper is coming for us and we're going to slow <laughs> down. But that isn't just, it's just not a useful voice because who really knows where the limits are? As you mentioned, for me, I'm 43, been doing it for over 20 years. I still believe there are faster times ahead of me. It means I have to be smarter about my training and the finer details start to matter perhaps a little bit more. But I agree with you. I tell people, you know, 15 years after you start is typically a time where you might start to see a peak. But I talked to one of my runners yesterday who started working with me maybe five or six years ago, and he's now 62 years old. And he asked me that question, you know, can I still run faster? And I said, yes, absolutely. I believe you can because you're doing all the work and he's continuing to build from his starting point. 
And everything he's doing is pointing to the fact that he's still getting faster, even at that age. So absolutely. Don't put limits. Completely agree with what you said there, Angie. Chris, what's your favorite distance? What do you gravitate to? Oh, I try to do them all because I'm, <laughs> I'm a big believer that all distances matter in terms of getting faster at all distances. If you're going to be a faster marathoner, you got to do the short stuff on occasion. And, but if I had to pick one, I guess I would pick the half marathon because it's, I think, a little bit of an underrated distance. The marathon gets all the glory, but a hard run PR on a half distance is just as hard, in my opinion, to prepare for. Plus, it's over faster and then you recover qu more quickly. <laughs> and so I've done actually more of those in my in my career than I have done marathons and I'm over 20 marathons. So mm -hmm. that's the one I would pick if you if you had to force me. But I still try to make sure I do all distances. Nice. OK, here's a question about back to back marathons. The question says, I am 51 years old, I'm looking to run Boston to Big Sur in 2023. I'm curious uh, how my training needs are going to be different. Uh, what should I focus on now? Strength, I assume. Also, any advice for Big Sur coming off of Boston? I like to BQ at Boston and then run Big Sur really easy. What is that, like one week apart, right? So I think week, this week. Yeah, yeah two, two week gap. Okay, so we actually get questions like this a lot about back-to-back -back marathons. Um, Angie, any thoughts about this? Well, I have never run the Big Sur Marathon. It's a bucket list one for me, but I have coached people who have. And like this listener says, it's an extremely challenging course. There's some some big hills later in the race, but it sounds like um, the listener really has a good perspective. Like their A race is Boston. And so that's really what they're gunning for. And so they're going to be focusing, you know, the bulk of their, their training on BQing at Boston. And then I would just say after Boston, just recover like a boss. That is going to be your full-time job, um, allowing your body to bounce back from Boston. You know, hopefully you get the performance that you want there. Um, and then just really focus on your sleep and hydration and nutrition. Get a massage or two maybe during that time, whatever works well for them to recover. Um, it's not going to be about training. You're not going to make any fitness gains during that time. And so the key will be just to go into Big Sur as well rested and as recovered as possible. And then, you know, your body knows what to do. You've done 26.2 multiple times. And so just approach that course with the mentality that you're going to not race it because it can be tempting, you know, think I'm going to go into this race and it's going to be quote unquote easy, but then you get the bug, you know, like people start out fast and you start to chase them sometimes, you know, just even if you have to like look at your watch and kind of set an easy pace for yourself, what you know you can handle for an easy long run and just try to stick with that as much as possible. And then, you know, capitalize on the downhills if you want, because your, your body may feel better just cruising down those hills. And if you need to walk the hills, there is no shame in walking. Um, I have walked <laughs> so many hills in my, my marathon life, and um, that's a great way to make a marathon a bit easier and kind of give those legs a break from what they've done in Boston. Awesome. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, the mentality is the biggest part is just make sure your A race as Boston, you leave it there. You don't get tempted to get greedy and ask for more from Big Sewer because it's going to be all about covering the distance and enjoying the beauty of that race. I would just add two notes. One is in the prep for Boston, anything you can do to prep for Boston is going to prep you for a hilly Big Sewer. And I always recommend particularly if you're talking about strength, which she asked about, that you incorporate some eccentric strength type training to help with the downhills, particularly working the quads in that way. Eccentric is basically when you're lowering yourself to the ground. If you were doing a lunge and you were lowering yourself more slowly with a little bit of weight, that would be an eccentric load to your quads. So I would add a little bit of eccentric strength to help with prep for Boston, which will also prep you for Big Sur. And then the other note I would add is after Boston, I don't typically recommend a lot of running in the next week after a marathon, maybe two runs, maybe three, if somebody wants to do a little bit more with low volume. And so I wouldn't change any of that. But I, what I would consider is some sort of alternative cross-training method, method that's low impact between the two races. So getting on a bike, doing some swimming, even a, an elliptical at easy efforts, whatever you can do to move a little bit to encourage blood flow, which promotes healing between those two races without adding the impact, which might set you back. So just maybe a little bit more cross training in between than you would normally do. I think 
related to this, uh, we got a question from one of our listeners about maintenance plans. This comes from Michelle. Uh, she says, I would love to see information on what you do between marathons, especially for those living in cold states. And the question also goes, what do maintenance plans look like? So maybe the gap is longer. Maybe it's two months in between races instead of two months. weeks or four. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna go I mean, through. She's talking about your- between marathons. You know, the thing I would want first say is that to the extent that you can be a year round runner, the better you're going to be anytime you toe the line, regardless of the distance. So if maintenance means continuing to run between those big races, then that's going to be an important part. And then it just becomes a question of, well, how big are your goals and where are they focused? If the marathon is your focus and you're trying to get faster there, then as I mentioned about myself, I highly encourage you incorporate training blocks for other race distances because the faster you're going to run a 5K, 10K or half marathon, the faster you can ultimately run a marathon. And so that might mean that your maintenance, so to speak, looks like training for a faster 5K or training for a faster 10K where the volume is a little bit lower and you get a bit of a mental break from the long slogs of those long runs for marathons, but you're working some faster paces and you're getting a result that's going to ultimately pay back when you go back up in distance. So that would be one way to maintain. She talked about how to do it in cold states. Unfortunately, I'm not that much help here because I live in a very warm state, but I do recommend treadmill running if that's all you can do in order to maintain in some of those colder months. And I coach a lot of people virtually that live in the Northeast as well as Canada who have to get by on a steady diet of treadmill runs in the wintertime. So I would incorporate that. And if you don't want to do those races in between, that's fine too. But what I recommend is just maintaining some sort of baseline routine whether it might be running three or four times a week at some lower volume. If you do that and do it consistently, it's going to help you jumpstart that next marathon cycle much, much more quickly. So we live up here in Pennsylvania. It does get cold. Angie, what do you like to do for maintenance during the winter months? Well, I think like Chris pointed out, it really depends on a person's goals. It depends on how healthy they are, you know, if, if they have a niggle or, you know, some kind of injury that maybe popped up or some area of weakness during their training cycle, the off season, you know, quote unquote off season is a great time to address any weak areas. And so I always encourage people to um, use that time profitably, keep a good solid running base going, but address any of those weak areas. And I'd like to have my coaching clients uh, focus on lifting heavier during the maintenance season, because sometimes when you're in the thick of training, it's a little bit difficult to um, lift heavy and make strength gains while you are um, trying to run fast and do some more heavy volume. So during Uh, the maintenance time, that's a great time to get stronger. And then you can capitalize on that um, when you're in the thick of a training plan. And I think this is a great time to have a coach. You know, people often think about just a coach that's going to give them their 16 or 20 week marathon training plan. But the off season can be an excellent time to work on those weaknesses and to make strength gains so that during the next marathon training cycle, you can just capitalize on that and jump in so much stronger, you know, start from a higher level. And coaches are great because they can individualize it for your needs. And probably keep you accountable during the off season. Yeah, when it can be demotivating. (laughs) All right, we have more great questions to get to. Quick break to thank our episode sponsor, Ice Barrel. This is a cold therapy training tool. It's a barrel made with 100% recycled material. It's durable. We have ours sitting right outside our deck. And you can fill it with ice and water and get that nice cold therapy benefit. That's right. Of course, cold therapy is a key component to better recovery and performance. It's also good for pain management, reducing inflammation, and improving your heart rate variability. I made it a point to use ice baths during my training for years, but it was always a pain to have to fill the tub with the ice. And there's something about like laying down in it that, I don't know, it was just really hard for me. So I would always put it off or you know not stay in there very long. But I find with the ice barrel that once you're in there, it just is a very soothing sensation. And I just come out feeling so much better. Yeah. So you can get $125 off over at icebarrel.com slash MTA. They offer a 30-day money-back guarantee and 100% satisfaction. Again, that's icebarrel.com slash MTA. Use the code MTA for the discount. Thanks also to our sponsor, Inside Tracker. 
If you haven't had a blood test in a while, they make it so easy and convenient. You sign up for one of their plans. They will send a technician uh, to your house. You can get your blood drawn or go into a, a lab locally where you live. Inside Tracker will analyze your blood, your DNA, even your fitness tracking data, and they'll identify where you're optimized and where you're not. And they provide an action plan, personal guidance, and all kinds of recommendation on nutrition and supplements, what kind of foods you should eat more of. It's a brilliant system. Yeah, it can be often confusing to know what you should be implementing. Does your body need more recovery? Does it need more anti-inflammatory foods? There are just so much data that is unique to every single runner. And so I think it's really important to know exactly what's going on in your own personal body. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To do that, you just go to insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. That's insidetracker.com forward slash MTA to save 20% off their entire store. Okay, here's a question about VO2 max. If I want to make sense of my heart rate data, should I do a VO2 max or a max heart rate test or not? So the question really is about the efficacy of a VO2 max test. Chris, we'll kick this one over to you. Okay. So this is a good question because a lot of people ask me, and I think a lot of times when people are thinking about VO2 max tests, they're somehow thinking about their fitness and getting that number that tells you, are they getting fitter and is there progress? And that can be interesting, but I don't find it that useful for training purposes to just get that raw score VO2 max number. And by the way, your watch is also typically telling you that if you're wearing a Garmin and I wouldn't trust that anyway. But what a VO2 max test can be useful for is figuring out your heart rate zones. And we have different formulas that we can use to calculate those zones by calculating your max 220 minus your age or calculating an aerobic threshold by doing 180 minus your age. And those numbers are useful rules of thumb. But in general, because heart rate is very individualized, if you want to make those numbers matter and mean something, you do need to get a test like a VO2 max test or max heart rate test, because that will give you the information to tell you exactly what those training zones are so that you can then go get into the right aerobic zones in order to get the physiological your benefit you're looking for from training. The other notes I would have about heart rate training is that if you're going to train by heart rate, then definitely get a chest strap for your heart rate measurement because wrist-based heart rate measures are typically not as accurate or useful. And you want to also probably work with a coach who can help you sort that out because that data can be a little bit harder, a little bit more confusing to use and very individualized, as I said, once you get that test data. But if you have that test information and you're using a wrist, a chest-based heart rate strap and you have a coach who can help you navigate it, it can be very, very powerful. I coach an athlete one-on-one who has all of that information and gets regularly tested because he kind of geeks out on it. <laughs> and I give him all of his workouts based on zones and he's doing fabulous. But again, that's a very specific case for someone who is geared towards thinking that way and who wants to spend the time figuring out that information. And if you're not going to do that, then I would give you a little bit of caution about using heart rate too explicitly because there are a lot of other ways you can approximate effort in our world. And we often do it in my world by telling you what type of race pace to run or what type of effort that you should be running out on on your runs. And so there are other ways to get to it. But if you are going to use heart rate, I do recommend a VO2 max test. Yeah, don't live and die by what your garment's telling you because, you know, <laughs> yep. you can think you have a great run and then you're like unproductive. Like what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. That's like every day for me. <laughs> unproductive. I, I just switched to the chorus, by the way, and all it tells oh, yeah. me after my runs is goal achieved. So um, yes. it's an upgrade from my perspective. And you have a chorus, right? I do. Yeah, I've used that for three years now. I switched from Garmin and yeah, I definitely like it a lot, especially for the battery life. And, you know, a lot of the features you get for the price point are really yep be great. So, <laughs> All right. So here's a question about speed work. And we mentioned Bart Yasso earlier. He has a workout, speed workout called the Yasso 800s. So this question is from Megan. I know you've mentioned doing Yasso 800 several times, but when would be a good time to do those? Before starting a marathon training plan in the middle? So questions about Yasso 800s. We should probably start with explaining what they are and then answer Megan's question about when to implement them into your marathon training. I'm going to have you start, Angie, because okay. I don't I don't use this workout, but I'd use a similar workout. And I'm curious mm -hmm. to get your perspective first. 
Yeah, like you said, it's it's one tool. For the Yasso 800s, the basic concept is that you warm up thoroughly with easy run, paced running. And it helps if you do this on a track or some kind of you know, flatter course that you can keep track of 800 meters or, or half a mile if you're not on a track. Um, and so after you're thoroughly warmed up, you run 800 meters, I say like comfortably hard. So you're not like all out sprinting, but you're really pushing yourself. And then you do 400 meters really easy. So just really light jog or even a fast walk. And that's your recovery. And then you go into the next 800 meters comfortably hard. And you do that for whatever the prescribed set of um, intervals is. I have people usually start out with six because it's a pretty challenging workout. And then as they go through marathon training, then we'll have them do like eight sets and then 10 sets. And I guess the reason they really kind of became popular is because people were using them as a marathon pace prediction. And so basically what you do is you record all of your your times from your 800s. And then if you're doing 10 sets, which is the full workout, you throw out the fastest and the slowest, then you average your other eight. And that is supposed to give you a prediction of your marathon pace, like what you're capable of running. And, you know, some people swear by them. I, I feel like it's one of those things where it's a good tool. It's not going to nail your marathon time on the head for sure. It can fluctuate wildly, but it can give you a good um, estimate of possibly what you could run your marathon in. Um, so, you know, if your average is four minutes per 800, then, you know, it's supposed to be that you could run a four hour marathon. And people have praised Bart Yasso for, for <laughs> inventing these and have sent him hate mail also. Right. <laughs> right. I was supposed to be able to run a 320 and I yeah. didn't. <laughs> I feel like this is sort of like McMillan's calculator. He tells me the same <laughs> things about his calculator. That, uh, yeah, I don't think Bart realized that this would take on a life of its own when he was making this recommendation. This is not magic, people. You know, right. it's not like you are now endowed with this time. For right. Era. So when do you <laughs> prescribe those typically, Angie? I usually do it, you know, kind of more of the middle of marathon training. Uh, maybe we'll do like the first set of them, like four weeks in, then I'll do like another set of them, like at eight weeks and another at 12 weeks. You know, I feel like since there are a a pretty specific workout. It's not going to replace like tempo work and other speed work, but it's just another tool that people can use. And for a lot of people, they have kind of a barrier to getting to the track because, you know, they are best run on a track. So you can uh, measure your distance more accurately. Sometimes it's like just a good impetus for people to discover a new type of way to run speed work, like getting to a track. People have these often these barriers that you have to be fast to run on a track and, you know, you have to be like, you know, Know, serious runner, whatever the the objections are. So sometimes getting to a track and just having a specific set of speed work to do can be a good way to open up a new area for people to explore. Yeah, I, I don't prescribe it exactly as he did. I like to give 800s as an interval workout. Typically, I'll prescribe them somewhere at the midpoint, kind of as you mentioned. And then I actually like to do an 800 meter workout near the end of a marathon cycle, maybe three or four weeks out from race day, doing the intervals at 10K equivalent pace with perhaps 90 seconds to two minutes rest between each, because that's a good not only test for where you are in terms of raw speed, but also ultimately makes marathon pace feel easier if you can execute those 800 meter intervals at 10K pace that late in the cycle. So I find that can be a good confidence builder. And for those that are well-trained, typically it also isn't too taxing as long as you're you know, getting good recovery and you're not cheating and going a little too fast on some of those intervals, which is tempting sometimes for people. So I don't, I don't prescribe it exactly as he did, but I do use 800 meter intervals quite a bit because I do think it's a, it's a good, I mean, really it's, it's probably the interval for marathon trainers to use. So it's a marathon training programs to use 800 meters and a thousand meter intervals. Speed work makes the dream work. <laughs> That's right. All right. That leads us to a question about tapering. This question says, how should quality workouts and strength training change during the taper? I'm training for my first marathon and with a taper coming up, I'm wondering if I should keep trying to do some speed work to get my legs used to running fast and just decrease the volume of running or if all my runs should be at an easy pace. I also strength train at least once, usually twice a week. Should I continue to do that or cut it out as well? So people have a lot of trouble like cutting back during a taper. Taper madness, right? Taper madness is real. I sign up for a marathon and then I just taper all the way to race day. <laughs> 
20 week taper. So we'll let you guys jump in here and well, I can start. So, you know, three week taper is pretty standard for marathon athletes, especially those that are newer to the sport. For some more experienced marathoners, sometimes I might prescribe a two week taper, or at least we might test that to see how it works for them as they get further along in their marathon journey. But for me, if I break down those two categories, quality workouts definitely stay, but we cut back the intensity and the volume just a little bit as we approach that marathon date. For me, I actually have a pretty prescriptive formula for what I like to use during the taper, at least as it is standard. Sometimes, again, I'll make individual adjustments depending on what people might respond to. But I like to have people do perhaps that 800 meter reps at 10K pace three weeks out. I like to do two times two miles or two to three times two miles at marathon pace a couple weeks out to really dial into marathon pace. And then I have a 400 meter workout done at very comfortable efforts that I like people to do during race week to just stay sharp, essentially that last workout, just to keep the legs sharp and the mind from going crazy. So we'll do that in those final three weeks. And then in terms of strength, my general recommendation is overall with running and with strength to maintain your routine as much as possible so you don't go crazy. And obviously you're going to pull back the volume a little bit. I like to tell people from a volume perspective to cut back one mile per run per week, keeping all of your runs and maybe putting a a floor on there of three miles for a minimum run, but keep all your runs, just cut back the volume, keep the quality workout as we mentioned, and keep the strength, but just cut back the intensity. And if you're worried about it, you know, you could discard those strength workouts in the final week or just move them to body weight movements just again to keep that routine. Because obviously, You want to make sure it's not intense in those final weeks, but I like to keep the routine because that helps you stay sane as you're getting ready for the marathon by just keeping yourself busy. What do you think, Angie? Yeah, that is great advice. And like you said, the length of the taper is obviously going to depend on the individual. Um, I do think it is helpful to follow a, a reputable training plan, especially when you're training for your first marathon or you're trying to improve at that distance because it helps take a lot of the guesswork out of it. Um, because sometimes, you know, you can see on social media like, oh, this person is doing a 23 mile run and this person's only doing 18 for their peak week, you know, and so like then it can really start to get kind of um, heavy and anxiety producing because you're like, oh, no, I'm not doing enough. So a good tried and true training plan for your first marathon is really helpful in taking a lot of the guesswork out. So then, it, you know, you know, the regular schedule of speed work and rest days. Um, and, you know, paces for different workouts and things. I do like the three week um, taper for sure. Um, And as far as the strength work goes, I typically tend like two weeks out to drop it down by about 50% and try not to do anything that's going to make your muscles overly fatigued or sore. So I would say, you know, drop back the heavy lifting. And then I typically recommend the week before the marathon, don't do any lifting. Like you said, if you want to do mobility work, Um, do some light stretching or some good yoga flows. That's really nice to keep your body limber. So just be confident about the process too. Like don't second guess yourself all the time because that last week before the marathon, all your workouts are in the bank. You're not going to gain any fitness in that final week. So don't try to be like making up any long runs. Don't try to be making up any speed work. I like doing strides, you know, at the end of a run for people who just want to keep the legs fresh and turn them over, you know, a little bit quickly, but it doesn't add too much fatigue, but respect the taper. That is the bottom line here. Yeah. Do a hard lower body workout the day before your marathon, eat some adventurous food, and then listen to David Goggins book. Can't hurt me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's how not to taper. What could go wrong? (laughs) So here's a question from Candice. She says, gels. I'm curious about the pros and cons and differences of using processed fuel versus real food. And then we have another question about how to carry fuel on race day. But first, your thoughts on gels. Well, again, I would say don't do anything new on race day. So your marathon training is a great time to start testing out your fueling uh, regimen. You can figure out like how your body responds to different fueling products. I will say that some people, the really concentrated gels just kind of land wrong on some people's stomachs, especially late in a marathon and can cause some gastrointestinal upset. So if you've not used gels, then it can be really risky to just be grabbing the ones from the aid station and 
you know, here goes nothing kind of mentality. So yeah, during marathon training is a great time to practice on your fueling. Some of the pros of using the processed fueling products, the gels, the chews, the drinks is that they are easier to carry and there is not a lot of extra fluff. Like you don't really want to be consuming a lot of fiber or fat during your marathon because unless you have an iron stomach, (laughs) you can run into some major trouble. So, you know, just things that are going to be more gentle on your stomach. You know, some people find that whole food products work great, you know, carrying dates or carrying, you know, rice balls. There's all sorts of recipes out there, but during your marathon training is a time to practice with those on your long runs. That is like your laboratory for deciding what works for you. And then when it comes to race day, you know, hopefully you have a good system figured out. And as far as carrying things, a lot of the bigger marathons won't allow you to wear a hydration vest. So I recommend people finding shorts that have a lot of pockets or, you know, there's like kind of like the little fanny packs. Spy belt is one of them. Yes. Spy belt. So there's many different ways to carry them, but it is personal preference. And we've been big fans of UCAN as far as a fuel source. UCAN has been a great sponsor and it's worked really well for us through the years. So I'm a huge UCAN user myself. So completely recommend that. It's the nice thing about UCAN for those that don't know it is it's not a pure sugar based product like a lot of the gels and and the chews. It's a cornstarch based product that's a slower burning carb that gives you a longer burning energy without the big spikes that you might get in blood sugar and insulin that come with those other products. So it's, you know, I guess you consider it processed, but it is a more palatable processed option. In fact, it was developed for people that had issues with insulin. And so it can be used by people that are diabetic, for example, to help keep their blood sugar stable outside of running. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I use pre-run. I haven't started, I haven't used their during run gels yet. I know there's a lot of big fans of those out there. I'll use it pre-long run, pre-race and then supplement with other things once I get on the course. But I can wait a little bit longer than most because I've got that good you can start. The other thing I would point out here on the process versus whole food products is, as you alluded, it just comes down to practicality. I think for most of us, the processed options are just easier to carry, easier to take, easier to chew, (laughs) you know, perhaps, because it's hard to chew when you're running. And then in terms of what to carry, I completely agree. You know, Spy Belt is an Austin-based company, so I have to give a plug for them. They're very small looking when you put them on, but they can expand and hold a lot of gels. I'm also a big fan personally of Tracksmith's Apparel, and they've done a good job with a lot of their shorts to have a lot of pockets, but there are other brands out there that do that. So find your pockets or get some belt that you can use to carry things because that should keep it fairly simple versus the hydration vest. Yeah. I remember these gels by Hammer, uh, Hammer Nutrition. I could, you know, eat those during a marathon, but after like toward the end, too much gel just, just bothers me. (laughs) A lot of people have that experience, just this cloying. (laughs) taste like i can yeah. maybe handle four <laughs> right. four or five is it you know but we had an ultra runner on the podcast stephanie howe i think uh, her name now is stephanie howe violet and she won the western states ultra you know 100 miler and we asked her how did you feel and she said i ate 93 hammer gels oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh wow that's what nightmares are made of yeah me. exactly <laughs> that's that's the hard part of running a 100 miler i've been told is figuring out how to eat yes that's a that's a sport all to itself. The the one thing I, I do people some hear people sometimes worry about is getting all of that sugar. And mm-hmm. the thing about that is, yeah, I understand that worry because if I was sitting here working and doing podcast editing and eating hammer gels, that would be terrible for me. But when you're using it in a workout and it's going basically straight to being used as energy then it's definitely has a different impact on your body than if you were just taking these things in while eating dinner one day. So for me, as somebody who tries to take care of my body, it's definitely something I worry about less in the context of sugar that's going straight to work versus sugar Mm -hmm. that might be hanging around and being stored in other ways. So that hopefully allays some of the fears of the people out there that are worried about taking in so much sugar. Yeah, we definitely recommend a whole food diet in your general life. But, you know, on race day, especially if it's a goal race, then go for convenience if at all possible. (laughs) Hey, just breaking in here a second to uh, give you some discount codes. You heard us talk about UCAN. Uh, So cool to hear that. Chris is also a big fan of UCAN. You can get 20% off anything on their website with our code. 
ucan.co forward slash MTA for 20% off. And also we were talking about ways to carry gels. My favorite running shorts of all time are made by Path Projects. I just love these running shorts. And you can tell you I wear these things not only for my runs, but I wear them literally every day during the summer. <laughs> That's right. You're, it's pretty much your uh, uniform. Which ones are your go-to for running? I'm wearing the Graves 7-inch. It's a classic running short with two pockets that are zip pockets and also has a rear pocket for carrying a phone. You can also get a separate base layer. And when I do trail runs or marathons, you know, I ran the Marathon du Mont Blanc wearing these shorts with the base layer. So you can get this base layer from Path and then the shorts right on top of the base layer and you can move without any kind of friction, without any kind of rubbing against your skin. And of course, everything's very lightweight, moisture wicking. They virtually eliminate all chafing. So it's it's pretty slick. Check them out at pathprojects.com forward slash MTA. Get 10% off with our link. And thanks again to Path Projects. All right, let's do one more question. This is about easy pace. Uh, the listener says, I'm a new runner. Focusing on consistency in my running and cross-training routine, not training for any particular race. I've made an effort to follow the 80-20 practice when slowing down my easy runs, but I still notice they can be mentally challenging, telling myself to keep going when I could easily stop and walk. Is this a sign that my easy runs are still too fast, or am I just getting adjusted to the mental side of running? You know, if maybe I'll start. I'm not a coach, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember, and I've done 18 marathons now, and like Angie said, I hated to run in the beginning, and she actually designed a run-walk program for me. And I remember it was hard to run for a minute straight, and I wasn't that out of shape. And I think a lot of it was mental. Like, people that run without music, I thought it was just inconceivable. <laughs> but, you know, you just keep going, and your, your mind does get tougher, and then pretty soon I was running for three minutes, and then I was running for a whole mile, and then I did a 5K half marathon marathon. It still gets really boring sometimes, but that's when you should just lean into it. Like, this is what I want. You know, I want the misery and the boredom and I want all of this because the harder it is and the more it sucks, the better prepared I'm going to be for race day. So lean into it. Yeah, I like that. The one thing I always remind people is that it's about covering the distance. It doesn't really matter how you do it. Some people get very specific about, well, I don't want to walk at all during the marathon. And that's a fine goal, but I don't see any issue with walking if you need to walk. You're still covering the distance. And especially if you're new, there's nothing wrong with mixing in walking breaks in order to build that endurance so that you can sustain the running part. My encouragement is to do it just like you did, Trevor, which is to set up some sort of cadence where you might be running for two minutes, walking for two minutes or three, one or one, three, however it works in order to keep everything in control. And so what I would ask this person is, you know, how does it feel? You know, how's your breathing? How's your heart rate? Do you find that when you're running that those things are spiraling out of control or is it you can still have a conversation with somebody because on an easy run, I want to see that you could have a conversation speaking in full sentences with somebody. And if you're not able to do that, even if it's an imaginary friend next to you, then that <laughs> probably means you should be integrating in walk breaks until we can get that heart rate and breathing to stay under control while you're doing the running portion. So I would let that be your guide. And again, if, if those things are getting out of control, then incorporate the walk breaks. And if they're not, then just try it. Try it for longer and longer intervals and see how it goes. Yeah, I think this listener is is doing it really smart because they're trying to follow the 80-20 principle, you know, keeping the easy runs easy and so that they can have more quality, harder runs. Um, and I, I really don't think you can go too slow on your easy runs. Most people make the mistake of staying kind of in that gray zone for most of their runs. So their hard workouts are not really hard enough to be beneficial and their easy runs are not easy enough to actually help them recover or build endurance. So I think they're starting out really smart. And so if you're on an easy run, you know, I don't think you can go too slow. If you want to walk, walk, you know, especially if it's a hill, if you find, like Chris was saying, your heart rate is going up, you're having dif more difficulty breathing, like that's not easy. So, you you know, slow that baby down. And if that means, you know, throwing in some walk breaks, you know, I'm training for my 70th marathon and I still throw in walk breaks on an easy run, you know, if, if I'm just not feeling it that day. So it's, it's all good. And yep. 
that voice in your head, I think that is where the real battle is, mm-hmm. because you will notice like that ego voice in your head that tells you it's very self-protective and it's telling you it's like, you know, this is hard. This is scary. This is something new. And it's trying to like shut it down before you do any damage to your body. Of course, you're not going to do any damage. Usually that voice is very, very proactive, like way too proactive and will keep you from reaching your goals if you listen to it too much. But, you know, just acknowledging that voice in your head, whatever it's telling you, being like, I hear you, but you just kind of have to override that um, after you acknowledge it and sometimes acknowledge the emotions that are coming up as you push yourself to do hard things. And that is one of the challenges of long distance running. But I think also the beauty of it, too, is that you get to um, experience different parts of yourself. (laughs) You are becoming a machine (laughs) and you're going to be amazed where you're at a year from now. And what you're able to make yourself do. Yeah, but you said it, Trevor, just keep showing up. And if she keeps showing up, the changes will be magical from week to week, month to month, year to year. And someday she'll look back and be shocked at where she is if she keeps doing it. So keep going and you'll be fine. Awesome. Well, that's a good place to end. Just want to encourage everyone listening to keep going. And thank you, those that send in questions. Chris, it's been fun hanging out with you here on the on air here on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, this is great. We should do this more often. We'll let you know if we ever make it down to Austin. Yeah, we're going to do tell. We'll... Trevor will show up to your five thirty group. If you have a five p.m. like run and pub crawl, we do have a six p.m. option every night as well. So, oh, nice, it'll be nice. just fine. Thanks, guys. All right. Always fun to meet a fellow podcaster. And it's always fun to do a Q&A episode and just see what's on people's minds. So hope you guys enjoyed that. Before we go, Angie, let's hear about your half marathon in Montana, the Bozeman Half Marathon. Is Montana still beautiful or what? (laughs) It is beautiful. Um, This time of the year, sometimes they have trouble with smoke from fires out west. And it was a little smoky during a few days that I was out there. But fortunately, on race day, it was a beautiful, clear, cool morning, and we had absolutely fantastic weather and great views for the entire race. So that was awesome. Uh, my sister Autumn and I traveled out to Montana, and we have uh, lots of family out there, so we were able to see family and friends. Well, Autumn, it didn't look like she was going to be able to do her half marathon. That's right. She has been dealing with some shin pain, which really set her back in her training. So she was going to start the race and just kind of see how she felt. If the pain increased, she was going to pull out, you know, rather to be safe than sorry. But she was able to finish with a combination of running and walking. She finished in 224. So I was very proud of her. And I finished in one hour and 59 minutes. um, And that included some walking breaks on the hills. With the extra elevation, I tend to not push myself. So this was more one to just enjoy the race experience and the beautiful scenery. Plus, you have a marathon coming up in a couple of weeks. I do, yeah. So I wasn't gonna, you know, kill myself at this race. Um, but this is the second year that we have done this event, and they just put on a great experience for runners. It's a point-to-point course, so they bus you out kind of, you know, out in the country and drop you off by the side of the road. They've got some porta pots set up and it's a smaller race. They have a separate start line for the marathon and the half marathon. And, you know, the road clears out pretty quickly. You're able to run at your own pace without tons of people around. And the scenery is just gorgeous the whole way. And the course is mostly downhill. I think the elevation for the half marathon drops over 1,000 feet. And they do a really nice, unique uh, wooden carved metal. And there's lots of great restaurants in Bozeman for a post-race meal, which Autumn and I always enjoy a lot. (laughs) So when you were in Montana, Angie, did you do anything else fun or interesting? (laughs) Yeah, one of the first days we were in Montana, it was like 99 degrees outside. It was extremely hot. So my dad lives near Spring Creek, which is a... It's the coldest creek in Montana. I don't know if that's true, but it's very cold. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the irony. Like everything's cold in Montana. But Angie, growing up there, you guys used to go to a place called Warm Springs Creek, which was not warm. It was just a (laughs) couple degrees warmer than everything else. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun. My dad and his wife um, took us, yeah, took us floating, and it was an enjoyable day to beat the heat. And my hometown, Lewistown, has some great running and walking paths. Um, and then we were in the Bozeman Big Sky area and did a hike over there after the race and just spent 
lots of time with family and friends. So yeah, it was, it was a wonderful trip. One final question. Did anything interesting happen on the way to Montana? <laughs> we were in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport um, waiting to board our flight to Bozeman. And my sister and I were talking. I don't know what we were talking about. And a guy came up to me and was like, Angie? <laughs> and I you know, said, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm Spencer. I'm a fan of your podcast. I've been listening for years. And you guys helped me train for my first marathon. And so we talked a little bit as we waited to board our flight. He and his extended family were traveling to Yellowstone National Park. So it was really fun to be able to meet him. And then actually on the return flight, again, they were on our same flight coming back. And I saw Spencer when I got on the airplane and I said, you know, we should have gotten a picture because that was the first thing Trevor said was, did you get a picture together? After we got off the flight in Dallas, Autumn and I only had like 30 minutes to make our next flight and it was in a different terminal. But we were able to get a very quick picture and then literally I had to take off running to make my flight to Harrisburg. Sounds like a good workout. Yeah, it was. I arrived all sweaty, <laughs> but I made the flight. All right. So Spencer, if you're listening, hey, cool name, by the way, Spencer. I know. If you're listening, send us that photo. Unless I look really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you had a nice trip to Yellowstone. But wow, what a small world. It is. That's for sure. Yeah, he and his family are from North Carolina. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for being a listener. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you write us a review, we'll definitely read it. It means a lot to us. And of course, if we can help you in your running journey, please reach out. We have a whole team dedicated to helping runners. You can find a contact form on our website. We're pretty good at getting back to people really quick. MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Thanks again to Inside Tracker, created by leading scientists to analyze your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store over at insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. Here's to a great fall running season. Until next time, please remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way, right on my way.